Well, as you can probably imagine, I am not Kevin James. That's right. I was, you know, I had that on my Facebook. There was a Facebook post that said, put um, people that you look like, famous people that you look like. And someone said, put up Kevin James. So I actually did. So this is my, this is my claim to fame here. You can go ahead and go to the next slide. You know, honestly, though, um, I was probably the most rejected kid as a, as a little tiny tot. Um, we used to play games like dodgeball and kickball and football. And have you ever had those two captains get up? And you got the one on one side, the other one on the other side, and then you got all these anticipating kids that are excited, these athletic agility kids. And, and I was one of those just waiting in line as the captain one says, you know, I want Tim, I want Bob, I want Joe, I want Susan. And then I kind of looked around and looked over and there's this kid, this nerdy looking kid, Chris, who's got a broken arm. <laughs> and I had a nickname, Guess I'll Take. It was my nickname. Because Captain Two would pick Chris, and then you'd see Captain One go, Guess I'll Take John. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but um, it's, it's a pretty painful thing, isn't it? It's, it's hard to feel rejected. In, in tonight's study, we're actually going to be looking at some, some rejection. We're going to see the acceptance of our, our gracious and loving Heavenly Father and the love of Jesus. You know, the, the one thing that I desire most off, often out of anything else in life is, is to know Jesus more. Isn't that true? Just to know, to be able to see his face one day. That's gonna be awesome. So we're gonna be in the, in the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew chapter four. And I'll read uh, starting in verse 12, uh, going to 25, and then we'll kind of break it down a little bit. It says, now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulon and Nephthalim that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Esaias the prophet, or Isaiah, saying, the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephthalim, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into, this, into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers' diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils and those which were lunatic 
and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we're just so honored and grateful, God, that we can study this magnificent word, this word that you breathed out, Lord God, even before the foundations of the earth. And Lord, we thank you so much that you have included us into your family, that you've called us your adopted, that you've called us your, our, your beloved, Lord, that you've said that we are holy and blameless in your sight. And we thank you for the blood of Jesus, which washes away all of our sin, past, present, and future. And we look forward to what you, what you have to say to us. So speak to us, open up our ears, Holy Spirit. Lead and guide me, God, me. May you be lifted up. May you be glorified as we look at your wonderful word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now our text comes after several things. Jesus begins his ministry and he starts off with the baptism. John the Baptist begins to preach repentance and Jesus comes to him and he comes out of the water. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and then the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the desert to fast and pray. And at that point, the temptation of the devil, as the entrance of Jesus into public ministry, he, he is cleansed by the water, not because he is sinful, but because he is a priest and he's preparing for his ministry. And immediately, he is catapulted into spiritual warfare with the adversary of our soul. Isn't it true that in our weakest moments, the enemy loves to give us the get out of free card? As we're struggling, as we go through our trials and our hardships and our pain and our suffering, the enemy just loves to come and say, there's an easy way out. But Jesus didn't take the easy way out. He took the right way. He said, I'm gonna listen to my father in heaven. And he said, it is written. And he used the word as the sword to come against the enemy. And in verse 12 and 13, we see that Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison. He departed into Galilee. Now let's kind of stop and kind of think about this a little bit. Think about John. Think about his, his ministry. He's opened up his ministry with bold proclamation. He's preached the gospel. People have been changed. Their lives have been transformed. And then he sees Jesus and Jesus comes out of the water. He knows that this is the son of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's ecstatic. And some people say, well, why are your disciples following after Jesus? And John says, I must decrease and he must increase. But now we see that John proclaims truth to Herod and he confronts Herod in his sin. He says, you shall not have your brother's wife. And Herod locks him up in jail. And the minute that John is in jail, he starts his prison ministry. It says here that Jesus, as soon as he hears that he was cast into prison, he departs. Imagine John sitting there going, cousin, where are you going? I need a friend. I need somebody. 
John was feeling that rejection as well. Comparative passages on the account in verse 13, leaving Lazarus, uh, Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. In Luke chapter four, verses 16, the scripture tells us that Jesus was ministering in his hometown of Nazareth and he preaches his first sermon. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And what happens after that sermon, after he steps down, is that the people that were in his hometown, the people that loved him, the people that remembered Jesus as a little boy playing in the dirt, now want to cast him away. They now want to reject Jesus. They now want to push him aside. And so the first place that Jesus goes to instead of his hometown is about 51 miles northwest on the very tip of the Sea of Galilee. If you could put up that screen with the, the picture here. We see that Nazareth is over here on the west and he walks and it's, I think it's amazing that they actually have a GPS for Jesus's footprints. But he kind of goes through Cana and works his way up all the way up to the very top, right up there to Capernaum, right up there by the Mount of Beatitudes. So he's up there, and this is a region, uh, Sea of Galilee is a region where uh, just before the first century, um, there wasn't very many people there, um, but there was a lot of Greek and Phoenician migrants that started working their way into here, and of course some Judean uh, uh, people from Judah, from Israelites, uh, started making their hometown there, and so they kind of congregated around the Sea of Galilee, and it was a place of trade, a place of you know, um, merchants, and, and it became very busy. In fact, some of the historians actually say that there was close to a million people around the Sea of Galilee during this time. Well, the interesting thing about this town, though, is uh, that it was rejected too as well. In fact, uh, a theologian, Frederick Bruner, said about Galilee, he said, quote, Galilee was not just geographically far from Jerusalem, it was conspiracy considered spiritually and politically far too. Galilee was the most pagan of the Jewish provinces, located as if it was the north, northernmost tier of Palestine. This distance from Zion was not only geographic. Galileans were considered by Judeans to sit rather loosely to the law and to be less biblically pure than those in and near Jerusalem. So there were some pretty negative connotations for those people who were in the area of the Sea of Galilee. But now we have this amazing thing, don't we? We see that Matthew, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the unction of the inspiration of the word, he reminds us, the listener, of a prophecy that was prophesied 800 plus years ago by this prophet named Isaiah. He says in verse 14, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet, saying the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephalim, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Let's kind of look at Isaiah too a little bit. Let's kind of go back and consider that Isaiah was this speaker, this prophet, proclaiming the word of God in the midst of a very dark time in the history of Israel. Israel was full of mayhem and terrible things, murder, 
on the streets, pillaging, paganism, all types of vices were going on in Israel. And here is this one man, Isaiah, prophesying and saying that a light will come, that the people who sit in darkness shall see a good light. And so Isaiah's message wasn't particularly accepted very much. But what we see here clearly from this is that Isaiah mentions that this light would be dawning in the land of the Gentiles. That's not, shall we say, kosher with the Jews. They didn't like to hear that. A Gentile, a goy, you know, I'm a Gentile. In fact, some of the, some of the rabbis actually say that, that a Gentile was the wood that was used to stoke the fires of hell. That was a pretty, pretty rash way of saying, we don't like you. But here is Isaiah and he's prophesying a very tough message saying that there's a light that's coming, this light of the gospel, the light of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. The people Isaiah mentions in his prophecy are stuck. Notice this word in verse 16, he uses it twice. He uses the word sat, which indicates how far gone they had allowed sin to affect them. Remember our passage at the very beginning, Psalms 1. It says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of scorners. There's a digression there of evil. The people walk in the counsel of the ungodly, and then they stand to observe the evil. And then when they're sitting, they're actually condoning the behavior. They actually think it's okay. So these people are actually in the midst of a crooked and a depraved generation and they're sitting there approving it. Thumbs up for me. You remember that, the, the uh, show The Voice that's on? They're, they're sitting there and they hear this beautiful voice and they turn around, they hit the button, they turn around, but they're sitting listening to the, the ambience of someone's voice. These people are sitting in darkness but they've seen a light, a light is coming and Matthew is prophesying of this, this light, this light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus declares this message of the gospel because he is the message. He's not only the messenger of the message, but he is the very message. We know the good news, don't we? That light has come into the world, that Jesus Christ has come born of a virgin, died, suffered, was buried and raised, rose again on the third day. First Corinthians, Paul mentions what the gospel is. He says, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which ye also received and wherein you stand, by which you are also saved. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried, and that he arose again the third day according to the scriptures. The scriptures meaning the Old Testament, the Tanakh, the, the Genesis to Malachi, the prophecy. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10, Peter also emphasizes the fact that the Old Testament prophets were inspired by the Holy Spirit to look into those things, to search diligently into the things of 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says in 1 Peter 1.10, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify that when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Ergo, the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi points to Jesus, points to the cross, points to the resurrection. The New Testament always points back and reminds us it's about Jesus. Old Testament, it's about Jesus. New Testament, it's all about Jesus. Don't forget the gospel. I think a lot of times we hear the gospel and we think it's just for those people who are weeping and realizing I'm a sinner. And they come down the aisle and we, they pray the prayer and we think that's the gospel. No, Paul reminds us, continue in the gospel. Continue obeying the gospel. Continue letting the gospel penetrate within you. Let it permeate your being. Let you live out your life in the midst of the gospel. Because this gospel is centerpiece. It's all about Jesus. He is the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. He's the sustainer of life. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And he dwells within us. Amen? Yes. And this is, the, this is what Jesus was preaching on this shore. Matthew, let's go back to Matthew verses four, verse, uh, chapter four, verse 17. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the gospel means good news. But you can't have the good news without the bad news, right? You can't have a solution without knowing the problem. My arm's broken. There's pain going on. Okay, I've got pain. Something's wrong. The solution is go to the doctor. Get a cast. So he says, repent. This is the beginning part of it. And a lot of times we get mis, uh, misconceptions about repentance. Repentance, we would think, is like sorrow. But 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 says, sorrow leads to repentance. Sorrow is an emotional response to what God has done, realizing that he is righteous and we're not. He is holy and we're unholy realizing, oh my, I am caught in my act. And then the sorrow comes, but that sorrow always leads us to repentance. And repentance means to change your mind, means to turn around. In fact, Spurgeon said, true repentance is a turning of the heart as well as of the life. It is the giving up of the whole soul to God to be his forever and ever it is a renunciation of the sins of the heart as well as the corruption of life. All sin must be given up or else you will never have Christ. All evil must be renounced or else the gates of heaven must be locked to keep you out forever. Let us remember then that for repentance to be sincere, it must be total repentance. So if I could put it into the whole rejection issue, repentance is the rejection of sin. Repentance is the rejection of the world. It's the divorce of the world and it's married to another. It's divorce of the sin. I want nothing to do with it. I repent. And then it is turning 
to the one who is our solution, who is God. Now that's the bad news. The good news, Jesus says, is for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel of Mark, chapter one, verse 15, it says, repent and believe the gospel. Believe that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Romans 10, nine. The second half of this message preached by God is the acceptance of the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ in your life. And it doesn't mean that just a quickie prayer. It means a lifestyle in which you and I are completely submerged into the gospel every moment, every waking hour, every thought is on the gospel. It is the centerpiece of our life. It's about Jesus. It's his sufficiency for everything we have need of. Paul writes to many of the churches reminding them to continue in the faith once delivered. But why? Why would he, why would he say that? Because we forget, don't we? We forget. He reminds us to do something because we forget. We're so easily prone to forget. Well, not only was there rejection issues going on, but also religiously, there is a rejection issue going on here in, in this uh, area of Judea. I mean, in the, city, in the cities surrounding the Sea of Galilee. The religious culture especially with Jews, was very strong at this time. There was, there was three schools that boys had to go to. Since the Maccabean revolt before the turn of the first century, the Jews desired to keep their heritage and their ethnicity cleansed and their identity. And so they had three schools for children, uh, boys, to go through. The first one was Bet Sefer, which is uh, from the ages of five to nine. And they were to learn and to read Hebrew they were to memorize large portions of the Torah, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy. The second school that they had to go through was uh, in between the ages of 10 and 12. It was uh, Bet Midrash, which was the study of the prophets. It was the oral Torah, and it was making application based upon those. So they memorized major uh, works of the Old Testament. And the final one was Bet Tamud, which is from ages 13 to 20. And these students were then called Talmidim. And they would listen and they would observe the rabbis that they wanted to follow after. And the rabbi would then test the students at the end with questions and he would listen to the response of the student to see if they were worthy of carrying the yoke of the rabbi. And if you were chosen as the top student in the rabbi, the rabbi would say, come follow me. If you were not chosen by the rabbi, he would say, go home and return to the trade of your father. So you can imagine the pressure of these young boys in line saying, pick me, pick me, pick me. And then saying, you can go home. You're not wanted. But the amazing thing is that Jesus accepts the rejects, doesn't he? He accepted me when I was yet a sinner. Christ died for me. He accepted you when the world cast their eyes away from you. He accepted us into the beloved. Jesus said, come, come to me, all you who 
are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Verse 18, look at this amazing thing here. It says, Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fisher. They were fishers. Most likely, you can imagine Peter and Andrew probably got rejected. The rabbi probably said, you know what? You tried, but it's time to go home. So here they are fishing. Here they are doing what their father told them to do. And I'm sure they were sad. Their dreams have been crushed. Their hopes have been smashed. But the amazing thing is that Jesus was looking at these two. Out of all the thousands of people that were there, out of all the myriad of people doing what they mundanely did on a day-to-day basis, Jesus' eyes were fixed on these two brothers. Jesus' eyes looked at him eyes of love, of acceptance, of hope for them. They're a diamond in the rough. He said, those, those are the two my eyes are on. And you know, the same thing, Jesus had his eye on you. Before you were even born, he formed you in your mother's womb. He said, you're perfectly and wonderfully made. I know the hairs on your head. I hold your tears in a bottle. I know how many, how many coughs in the night. I know what you've gone through. I know what kind of pain you're going through. Jesus' eyes were on you. He was fixed upon you. You were that precious treasure that was sunken in the mud, in the dirt that no one else knew and he purchased the property so that he could take you out. He could put you on the mantle and say, this is my beloved this is my son. This is my delight. See, though we were far away from God, Christ died for the ungodly. Though we were far away from God, God brought us near to himself. Now, if we look at this passage and, and how Jesus is having his eyes on, on, on these two, I'm, I'm always trying to compare Scripture with Scripture, especially the story of, of this. And, and the amazing thing is if you look in Luke 5, and you can look at this a little bit later, but it, the Bible says that Jesus saw two ships docked because Peter and Andrew were out cleaning their salty and wet nets. And Jesus jumps aboard. The Bible says that Jesus jumps aboard this and he tells Peter to cast out. And then he teaches the people from this pulpit. And I can imagine what Jesus is actually saying. He's actually using this parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be to, at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and server and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. 
And I can imagine that Peter is hearing this and he's thinking about his dreams of being a rabbi. He's thinking about how this man is exposing the gospel. He's exposing the scriptures to him. And he's imagined thinking, you know what? I was no good for a rabbi. And I'm no good as a fisherman because we haven't caught anything. And then Jesus tells him to go out further out into the sea and cast down his net. And he says, Jesus, you know, we've been out here a long time. We've done this all night. I'm exhausted. But he says, because of your word, we will do it. And the Bible tells us that as they laid out the nets, they drug in so much fish that the ship began to sink. And Peter calls out to the other two, James and John. They come out and they help. And the scripture says in Luke 5, it says he turns and he falls down at Jesus' knees and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That is true repentance. See, Jesus gets a hold of us. Jesus casts the net upon us. He gets into our world. He speaks our language. He does something so mind-blowing into our life that we realize his holiness and our unholiness. And just like Peter, we say, oh God, get away from me from sinful man. I'm a wretched, wretched sinner. And Jesus turns to him and says, now I want you to go and catch men. I want you to follow me. Come follow me. Come be my student. Come follow the rabbi that searched you out, that accepted you. And I will make you a fisher of men. What words to hear from a man feeling so rejected, huh? From a religious society that gives you such a, such a high protocol that you have to get to a certain point in order in their eyes to be noticed as popular or amazing or incredible. And yet Jesus turns and says, I want the rejected. I want the neglected. I want the abused. I want the mistreated. I want the devalued. I want the person that's stuck in their sin, that's so far gone that they have no hope that all they can do is look up and say, oh Lord, save me. That's what he's called us to do. That's what he's called us in our situations. He's come to me in my brokenness, my frailty, and said, come follow me, John. Come follow me. And I'll make you a fisher of men. And the amazing thing, verse 20, Matthew chapter four, verse 20, it says, and they straightway left their nets and followed him. So there's three things that they did. They left their livelihood, which is their income. They left their occupation, which was their position, their status. And they left their father's business. So they left family. And the gospel costs us something too, doesn't it? I, I can just gather that you in this audience who, who know the Lord, who've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you've had a pretty heavy price to pay for putting your faith in Jesus. Some of you have been neglected or rejected from your own family 
because of your faith in Jesus. Some of you have, are in situations where you're at work and they don't like you because you profess Jesus or because you have some strong moral thought, scriptural mandate. You know, what does it cost you for the gospel? It costs us a lot, doesn't it? It's a free gift, but it costs us a lot. And James and John are then added to this net of the gospel that Jesus has thrown out. As it says in verse 21, 22, and going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. It's incredible. And so really, if we look at what, what has been happening here, the invitation to follow Jesus is what the gospel is all about. If we look at this, Jesus invites us to him that we may invite others to him. If you want to get the main point of tonight, Jesus invites you that you may invite others. Jesus wants you to follow after him so that he can use you to bring others to him. See, Jesus is the bait and the hook. He's everything. And he wants us. And he says, come to me. Come to me, an invitation. As we look at the, the final section of this, these passages, I think there's something that's really, really important in regards to these fishermen. Let's look at verse 24 and 25. Actually, starting in verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought unto him all sick people. Let's stop right there. I want you to notice something. Ask yourself, why would Jesus pick fishermen? Out of, out of anyone to start the church of God, why would he pick fishermen? Why couldn't he pick an executive director of public relations? Someone who had a little bit of status, maybe, maybe a camera crew, you know, little Jewish uh, Jerusalem KSBY or whatever. Why didn't, he pick, why didn't he pick the popular? Why didn't he pick Gamaliel? Why did he pick fishermen? Well, let's think about fishermen a little bit, shall we? These were men who understood long hours with hardly any pay. They understood that in order to get the best catch of the day, they had to have the nets that went almost close to the bottom. They tied rocks onto the ends of the net so that it would spread from the floor to the boat to be effective. And then these men understood the tough storms and hardships of the day. They were used to getting their hands dirty and smelly, hands covered with fish gunk, they knew what it was like to drag in heavy nets full of pounds and pounds of fish to the shore and clean those fish. So I want you to look at verse 24 again. 
It says, and his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought unto him all sick people. Who is the they? Who is the they? Let me say another thing. Who better to touch the hands of the leper and the man with epilepsy than a rough, deadliest catch type fisherman? Who better than a fisherman than to get to the lowest point of sinful mankind's depravity and drag them to Jesus than fishermen? Peter would then say, I am not the source of your answer, but I know who is the answer. So you sit at night, and I sit at night, and we wonder this question, why did God pick me as a servant? I, I do ask that question. I, you know, there's all this self-doubt that goes on in my mind so much. Why did God pick me to lead worship? Why did God pick me here? I'm not anyone special. And I'm sure you probably asked that question. Why, why did God pick me to work at this place? Why did God pick me to put me into a situation where I'm surrounded by a bunch of people who are foul mouth? Why did he do that? Because Jesus wants to include you in the process of salvation. He knows that you're the only one that can reach into the hearts and lives of people that no one else can. You know, Pastor Ross, Pastor Jim are out there and they're preaching the gospel in India, or they're going to be. And they're also encouraging pastors in India, one of the toughest and poorest countries of the world. And we look and we think, wow, I wish I could do that. But God's called you. Your world is the world around you. Your influence is those people that you know that no one else in the church knows about. You have a history. You have a past. I get that. We all do. But Jesus called you specifically to preach the gospel. It's not just for us who stand in front of a pulpit. We're here to remind you of what God called us to do. Go into all the world and preach the good news. That means that you're special enough to Jesus that he wants to use your heart and your personality and your foibles and your quirks. And he wants to use you to touch people that no one else would ever want. He wants you to be those fishermen to dig down deep into the depravity of mankind and bring them up and, and point them back to Jesus. The sinner, the prostitute, the tax collector the lost, the broken, you see them every day. You walk by them. Their eyes are full of hopelessness, depression, anger, frustration. You see them at school, at the college. You see them in your family. God's called you, not just to live your life for Jesus, but also to say something. To say, you know what? I don't have the answer, but Jesus is the answer. He's the source. That's why the gospel is so central for our lives. It is so important that people's lives are at stake. The value of a human life is not a price tag. 
it's so much that God would allow his own son to get into a human suit, to suffer, to be rejected by his creation. The God who is unapproachable now has people touching him. The God who taught us how to speak our language has to learn how to speak his first syllable. That's the gospel, the mystery, the paradox that the God who is surrounded by holy angels, the God who is the centerpiece of worship that thunders and lightnings are cracking around him, that he understands the silence of a turned face, a rejected scowl. He understands you and he understands the people around you and he wants us, us corporately, to be his hands, his, his feet to the body that needs Jesus. There's brothers and sisters out there. They're on the precipice of destruction. It's up to us to be the net to say, it's about Jesus, it's about Jesus. In conclusion, this, this passage has really been calling me back to focusing upon the cross the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. The cross and knowing that I need to deny myself and pick up my cross. That there are areas of my life that, that need to continually be given over to mortify the flesh. So that I can allow the Holy Spirit's powerful resurrection to impermeate my life so that I can be more of a reflection of Jesus because I want Jesus more and more every day and I need him and we're in a dark, dark place. We're in a dark, dark generation and we need the light of Christ to shine brightly. Jesus takes our pain, he takes our, our life, our past and our present mistakes and he uses us to lead others to him. We are called to proclaim the gospel and we're called to proclaim the grace that was given to us and the willingness for us to reach into the lowest dredge of sinful mankind around us so that the rejected and the broken and the lonely can find their savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this word, God this word that challenges us to worship you, to adore you. Father, we pray that you would fill us with such an emboldened passion that we would know that you have included us into your family and that we are adopted as your children, but not so that we can just sit back, so that we can be a part of drawing other people to you. Jesus, would you increase our faith? Would you cause us to be stirred tonight, Lord, as we, as we worship you, as we declare that you are, you are greater than any other God. You're above all. We pray, God, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would permeate our lives, that we would not only live it, but that we would speak it. Lord, open up opportunities. Give us um, people that we make be in contact with that, that would have an open ear to hear 
the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, give us boldness where we lack it. Give us eyes to see you constantly. Thank you so much, Lord, for your great love for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org or find us on Facebook. These podcasts are also available in video format on our Calvary Chapel The Rock YouTube page.